I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller. For our episode this week, we have a really excellent guest. Rebecca Tweed, who's president of Tweed Strategies and executive director of Grow Oregon, among other things, is a person who has been involved in 50 political campaigns for local government, legislative and statewide candidates, plus a bunch of statewide and county ballot measures. She's an extremely successful political strategist, though, of course, she's lost as well as won campaigns. In 2010, she served as the political director for the Oregon House Republican Caucus, where she helped lead the Oregon House to a historic 30-30 tie between Republicans and Democrats for the 2011 legislative session. She also most recently was the campaign manager and political director for Representative Newt Bueller, who ran for governor against Kate Brown in 2018. So Rebecca has a lot of experience, and she came into the studio and shared her perspective on politics, and I really don't want to say too much more about it because... I'm just going to let the interview speak for itself. Here's Rebecca. Welcome to the White Tiger Studio, Rebecca. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'm just going to move into the question that I ask all my guests. What is something that used to outrage you and no longer does? And what led to that change? You know, I thought about this question a little bit. And what used to outrage me uh, was feeling like I didn't have a voice or feeling like I didn't, I wasn't represented at the proverbial table. And that... I couldn't identify, and more importantly, that I didn't feel like politicians and those who worked in politics tried to identify with me. And I was very frustrated by that. And I'll I'll use a quick example of it. When I first got involved in Oregon politics about 14 years ago, you know, I'd been here for about two years and was sort of a staff assistant on a campaign. And uh, sitting around the table was myself and six older white men talking about education and talking about how we needed to reach out to women and we're going to talk about education and that's their number one issue. And how they would message it. And I remember raising my hand as a young woman saying, that's not actually at all what I think about education. (laughs) And here's what I actually think. And here's what young 26-year-old women think about education. And they hadn't asked you. You had to to put your hand up and get in the conversation actively because they weren't saying, oh, we actually have a woman in the room that we can find out. Exactly. Um, And, you know, part of it was I wanted to have the best strategy for the the campaign we were going towards. But the other part of it was just a real reflection of, you know, if somebody came to me to talk about education in that way, 
they would not have my vote. Like, that's not how I think about it. And it developed into having a voice at that table and actually developing a voter identification program that, you know, dives deeper into those issues. So, you know, it doesn't exist. That outrage doesn't exist anymore to the same strength, really, for two reasons. One, I think the table's changing. It looks very different than when I started 14 years ago now. And so that's great. It it doesn't exist that we're not listening to people anymore. What does the table look like now, then? Uh, I think it's a lot younger, you know, folks my age or even younger than me, much more diverse backgrounds, whether it's from religious backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, gender identity, people that have brought different professional backgrounds, because I think politics is actually becoming a lot less political and it's becoming a lot more personal. And people who have never worked in politics have some of the best ideas about how politics should work. And so I think the table's changed in what perspectives people are bringing to the table. There's certainly a lot of work to be done. Anybody that works in politics at all will tell you, you know, the goal is progress, not perfection. And then I would say the outrage has changed a little bit because I think it's improved the way that folks who work in politics professionally, it's improved the strategies uh, in the way that we talk to voters. And it's improved sort of the air quote unquote game for how we need to reach people on issues that actually matter to them uh, and holding each other to task on making sure we're talking about Oregonians about real issues. So strategically and from a career standpoint, <laughs> you know, that that pivot was really helpful. You mentioned that you were the only woman at that table. And I was going to ask you a question. You know, you're you're a woman working at a high level in electoral politics, which has traditionally been a male dominated endeavor. What are some of the obstacles that you have encountered and how has that changed over your 14 year career? Sure. Uh, Well, and I appreciate you asking the question, Uh, and it hasn't all changed. (laughs) Sometimes I'm still the only woman in the room, and that's okay. Um, I think the obstacles are assumptions that are made about how women approach things a certain way. Uh, I think we still deal with a little bit of identity politics in the way that people make assumptions about women being involved in politics. Uh, I also feel like Sometimes we don't feel like we have a voice that we can we can use. And so once you start using it, now people are making more assumptions about right. you're a strong, assertive woman, or how did you get here, or what connection do you have instead of just somebody that's that's worked really hard. And males in politics that don't have those same assumptions attached to them. Mm-hmm. Often. I'm going to move to a different question. Is there something that currently outrages you? What do you do with those feelings of outrage? Or are you pretty, are you pretty good? <laughs> I try to keep, you know, if you ask people that work for me on campaigns, they'll tell you I'm very aggressive. But from my uh, personal, professional, uh, political standpoint, I try to stay a little bit mellow. But I would say, you know, one thing that I try to advocate very hard for, whether it's for a client or just in my own belief system is, I think we still struggle with a perception gap. I think we still struggle with assumption making, and I know I use that word a lot, but we struggle with a perception gap and stereotyping other political parties or other people that are involved in politics. The assumptions are actually worse than the reality, and that's what we're finding, and I think that's creating a divisiveness that doesn't really need to be there, where Democrats assume something about Republicans, and Republicans assume something about Democrats, and instead of ever talking about it, we just go to opposite sides of the room as soon as we can. And it goes beyond even partisan assumptions. It's assumptions about where somebody lives in the state, or what school they went to, or what color their skin is. But our brains do like to make these shortcuts, Mm -hmm. because they simplify our movement through the world. They require less energy, but they can often be highly inaccurate. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's what's frustrating me right now is still feeling like we're 
we're trying to be the most inclusive of a community, and I mean that you know writ large, the the country. But we're still putting people into corners, and we're still making stereotypes. And I think it's damaging our ability to have relationships with one another and to accomplish things. I think a lot of people know that it's unhealthy. They don't mm-hmm. want it to be that way. So what do we do? What do you do personally? And also, what's your advice for the rest of us? Sure. Well, it's hard to not make pretty quick judgments about people based on something they post on social media or just what you assume about, you know, their position in life. But I think we all have to take a step back and realize that we actually, we just need to now make the assumption that we have a lot more in common than we think. You know, I speak a lot at colleges or universities, and I usually will speak with somebody of a different political background than my own. And one of the things I encourage people to do is write down, you know, the five issues that are the most important to you. And then we're all going to read them out loud or we're going to talk about them. And I guarantee 98% of the room, the five issues are exactly the same. They might be in a different order, but we have a lot more in common than we think. And I think taking a step back, if everybody can commit to doing that and just saying, I wonder why they feel this way, because I know I feel strongly about something why do they feel strongly about it? So, you know, I think one is, is just really listening to each other and trying to know that we're about to make an assumption and hold yourself back. And, you know, I have to do it every day. Right. Every day that I wake up and I get ready to join a conference call or I get ready to go speak or, or be interviewed, you know, I have to call my assumptions into check and just say, go forward and just talk about what matters to you. And chances are, once you build that relationship, you'll actually accomplish more than you plan to. You know, some of my best political and professional relationships are with Democrats, people from the other side of the aisle that have said, we would like you to be at this table to talk to us about this issue. And uh, when I work for nonpartisan candidates, almost all of them are Democrats. It's not, you know, we're not so strictly partisan, and it feels like it right now. But that's actually changing. You know, the the horizon of people that are less partisan is growing. It's those that are extremely partisan that's intensifying. But those numbers are lessening. People are actually trying to be balanced and try to work with one another. They don't get noticed as much. And that's actually one of the challenges of being somebody who doesn't make a lot of noise and who also doesn't fit into a predetermined box is getting noticed. You know, if you're a very extreme Democrat or Republican, you're going to get a lot of notice and you're going to yourself make a lot of noise. How do people in your political strategies, you work for both partisan and nonpartisan candidates. Mm -hmm. How do you get the people who have challenges cutting through? How do you cut through? If I'm advising a candidate, we'll just use that as an example. You know, it's stop talking about how many Democratic votes you need or how many Republican votes you need. It's how many Oregon votes do you need? How many Oregonians do you represent in your district or your county or your area? And start thinking about the issues instead of talking about certain partisan affiliations or or thoughts that you have. That's, of course, speaking to a candidate and not the general public. You know, I think the way to cut through it is to, again, take a step back and figure out why are they trying to make noise about this? What is the issue? Because I myself am not very political in, in the social media world. Everybody knows what I do for a living. If they want my opinion, they can come ask me for it because it's only going to divide people. And so I often, you know, my recommendation is, just kind of shut it out. Just know that they are in a minority, even though they are the loudest. And do what you can to, you know, be kind to yourself with what kind of energy you let in. And if something outrages you, figure out why it outrages you. Does it outrage you just because somebody from a different party is saying it? Or does it outrage you because you fundamentally disagree about a choice issue or the environment or whatever? And try to turn that into, you know, a positive impact that you can have. And again, I think it goes back to recognizing that you probably have something in common with that person that's making you angry. Maybe try to focus on that instead.
You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. Are there campaigns that you really, really wanted to win and didn't? And how did you feel about not getting there? Or is, do you just not get that emotionally involved? Oh, I absolutely do. <laughs> but it's every campaign. And so, then win or lose, I quit every November, right? And then I've been doing this for 14 years, so I certainly come back. You know, I get really passionate about each campaign that I work on, uh, even some that look similar to others. You know, I've run a number of judicial campaigns or a ballot measure You start over every single time fresh, and you want to win each time. Uh, Certainly just did some work on a gubernatorial campaign in Oregon. Our candidate or my candidate did not win that race, and so that was very emotional. And Um, people really felt like that was a winnable race for you. It was in the grasp. How hard was that? Yeah, really (laughs) tough because we did have a lot of support and because Newt is a great guy and a great candidate and I think would have been a great governor. So it's hard when you come out of a loss for that or for, you know, something smaller and more local. It's always tough. Does it make you angry that the voters of Oregon didn't break your way? Or do you not have that kind of anger directed at voters? No, I don't have that kind of anger. I mean, you're disappointed, but, you know, just recognizing that some of it, you know, can be campaign missteps, maybe I'm not admitting to any. And some of it is just a a respect for where voters are. Uh, and just recognizing this is what, you know, the voters said. And I know that sounds very holistic and peaceful, you know, 11 months after a loss. Um, but really, it's it's sometimes you're just going to match the voters where you can match them and other times you won't. I think the same thing about campaigns that I've worked on where we've won and the numbers didn't look like we would win. But it's it's always a learning process. And, you know, I think voters are different every few years. Oregonians are different every few years. I mean, if you look at yourself and your family and you think, do you feel exactly the same as you did two years ago about something? Probably not. Maybe your parents are retired now. Maybe uh, somebody's lost a job or been promoted. I mean, everybody's experiencing different things and that will impact uh, how people vote. You know, I have some principles that will never have changed uh, and hopefully never will, but my policy thoughts on things have changed over time because the world changes, Oregon changes. That's an interesting thing about campaign is that there is a finish line, Mm -hmm. but there's no end because there's always another election. And that's what democratic politics is. Democratic politics has these points where there's a win or a loss, but it's an ongoing process. Right. Well, and I think politics is, it's certainly very passionate. It's very personal, but a lot of things in our lives are, you know, when I introduce myself to somebody new, the first thing I don't tell them is, oh, I'm a Republican strategist. It's, oh, I'm shopping at Whole Foods. I like this product too. Or, oh, I have yoga in common. Or, you know, meeting somebody at the dog park. I mean, there's all sorts of things that make up who we are that we care about. And I think you're right. Politics is heightened and it should be. It's it's important. Our vote matters and, and issues really matter. And they impact our ability to go to dog parks or grocery stores or or health and wellness. But if we start looking at it as a piece of everybody's personal puzzle, it's just 
it's who they are. It's the same way that some people like football and some people like basketball, you right. know, and you don't hate people for being different. Well, and it's interesting, though, because we tend to see opposition and difference in politics as worse than in other ways. Like you say, you know, like if I'm a, I, I'm a football fan, I don't mm-hmm. like basketball. And there are people who love basketball and like football. We don't look at each other and say, oh my God, what's wrong with you? Right. You're not you're, a real sports you're fan. You're not a real sport. <laughs> well, there, there are the occasional people who will say that. I do say uh, that to people yeah. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I have trouble with people who like baseball. I'm like, ah, baseball's kind of boring. I really right. you like baseball. <laughs> but I certainly am not likely to think that they're a bad person. Mm-hmm. Whereas it is tempting to be like, well, you have this view of, about taxes or healthcare or whatever it happens to mm-hmm. be. And I totally disagree with you and you're a bad person. In politics, it's, it's almost like an automatic reaction that we judge people for being different. And in the rest of our lives, we do some of that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. might be like, oh God, you do yoga? Jesus. Right. Most of, the time, <laughs> most of the time we're like, I don't do yoga, but boy, wow, that's kind of cool that you do. Right, uh, right. Well, so, and since you brought up football, I'll use a, an example I use often. Uh, I'm a rabid football fan like auto responders up over the weekend saying i'll get back to you when football's over we have that in common yes uh and i'm a dallas cowboys fan and so i use this example of you know if i walk into a sports bar and there's prime seating with the television and the person sitting in front of it is a redskins fan and i want to sit there and i want this guy to buy me a cup of coffee or a drink the chances of me walking up and saying the redskins are the worst team in nfl history is probably pretty slim if I want to sit there and I want, you know, to have a relationship with this person, I'm going to talk about football being great. And we're going to have in common that the refs are ruining the NFL this year. And we're going to talk about how long we've liked football. And right, and yeah. then, you know, 10 minutes in when he asked me who my team is and I say, well, it's God's team, the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> you know, he may have a slight different approach, but. I'm still going to be able to sit there and watch the game. We built a rapport with each other. And politics needs to be the same thing. We all care about something. And I like that example. And that connects back with what you were saying earlier about when you ask people to list their five most important issues. It kind of matters what you talk about first. If you talk about the things you have in common first, then you can bring up your areas of disagreement. So if you and the Redskins fan talk about all of that stuff that you listed, and then you mention who you are and you see that you're rivals, you've built something Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to talk about all the stuff you have in common if you've first talked about what you have that's different right and again we would never do that in any other social environment you would never walk up to somebody at the store and tell them that color looks horrible on you or why are you buying that we don't engage that way any other way it does i've been teaching politics for a long time and it does sometimes mystify me why it is that we treat politics so differently though other times i get it and like you say it's because politics is super important. It's high stakes. It really does affect other, all of the rest of our areas of life. And so people have a sense of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be maybe a good idea for us to try to treat politics more like we treat the rest of the world. Right. You know, I was going to ask you for what your advice would be to somebody, but I, I'm getting a lot of advice out of you. So I'm going to ask a, a slightly different question. You, you do speak to uh, a lot of young people, uh, and this is maybe even an experience you've had. Let's just say that some young person comes up to you and says, you know, I really want to go into politics. I really care about my community and I think I can make a difference. I feel like I have good ideas. Politics is so full of anger and divisiveness and fear-mongering and ugliness. I I'm really I'm really concerned about entering that kind of endeavor. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that young person? Uh, I would say great, get involved and absolutely, you know, follow your passion and don't be intimidated by it. And then I would try to encourage them that it, it doesn't, it's not actually like that on the inside. You know, follow around your state representative for the day. Follow around somebody that works in politics. Uh, go get involved with a civic organization and see how people are trying to work together. 
put aside the assumption that it is that aggressive everywhere and that everybody feels that way about it and be that sort of positive energy to it. You live in Portland, which mm-hmm. is a democratic stronghold. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was going to ask you about what it's like to know that for the most part, the candidates that you want to win are not going to win around here. Is that a challenge or is that dispiriting or do you just take that as kind of the given of electoral politics? It's it's all three. I mean, I think you have to have a realistic perspective that, you know, a, a very strong partisan Republican is not going to win in Portland. But why wouldn't they? Because those are not what the voters are in Portland. That's not what they want. And so I try to push that energy to other places where uh, candidates can be more successful or where an issue can be more successful. I do accept the challenge, you know, of all the campaigns I've worked on, specifically for state representatives. Uh, I think only three have been uh, Republicans in Republican-held seats. Uh, the other 35 have been Democrat seats, and we won a majority of those. Uh, because, again, I think we talked to Oregonians about Oregon issues. And you just have to be able to kind of acknowledge that some things are going to be tough. And, and that does, you know, one of the things I talk about with my students a lot is what I call the loser problem, which is that if you are a Republican in a strongly Democratic district or a Democrat in a strongly Republican district, and you're, you know, you're really never voting for the winning candidate, mm-hmm. you can get a sense of, well, I'm a loser and I never get my voice heard. How can people who are endemically losers based on where they live and the, and the uh, political demographics of their area, how can they address the loser problem. It's got to erode their sense that they have a voice. Yeah. Or, or does it not? Is there a way to speak to people like that to say, well, you do still have a voice. It's an important voice. I think it's both. I think you can still help them find their voice by saying there are other ways that you can get involved. You should still go to city council meetings. It does make a difference, right? You should still be involved in your school board. Or did you know in Salem, there's actually an organization that advocates or lobbies for the issue you care about, where you will have a chance to talk to your representative. You will have a chance to talk to your senators. I do, you know, a lot of work with voters and Oregonians in Multnomah County that are expressing exactly what you just said. You know, they feel like it doesn't matter what I do, but I don't want to leave here. I love where I live. I just, I want something to be a different way. And I think what we're finding, uh, while voters are having stronger voices and finding larger voices, so are organizations, right? Neighborhood associations are definitely powerful, influential organizations. The city clubs that are local to communities Chambers are some of the most influential organizations in the state. There's a lot of different ways to still have that impact. But at the end of the day, you may just have to be somebody that says, I'm never going to have a Republican state representative as long as I live in Northeast Portland. And I'm going to work on it in different ways. Right. So don't just think of your political voice as your vote. Uh, We have a very ballot-centric political culture where my voice is my vote, but you're saying your vote is definitely part of your voice. Mm-hmm. But especially if your your vote is, you know, really not going to ever get a candidate right. across the finish line, you, you need to find other outlets for your voice. Talking about your vote mattering and your voice, you know, being heard. It's absolutely true. I think it's very important, obviously, that everybody vote. But there's only two days a year that you yeah. get to exercise that voice. For the other 363, there's a lot of different ways to be involved and be engaged. And some of those are more important. And a lot of elected officials, especially now with heightened awareness around political issues, with uh, voters being more educated about issues than ever, are paying attention to what neighborhood associations are saying. They're paying attention to chambers. Uh, if you look at the timber unity movement that popped up at the end of the legislative session, that was not an organized group of people initially. And now it's tens of thousands of people deep that cared about an issue that drove to Salem just to be heard. And that doesn't have to happen on that scale. It can happen locally. So I think, you know, sometimes we just have to accept where things are, but also still have 
you know, try to find the outlet for the impact. Right. There are plenty of opportunities in the political world to have an impact. So seek mm-hmm. where you can actually have an impact and not just be dispirited that I'm a Republican in Multnomah County and I'm never going to be able to have a state representative who's a Republican. Yeah. Uh, at least in our foreseeable future. Well, that, I think that's, that's great advice for everybody. <laughs> and I think that's a great place to end. And uh, I really appreciate you coming in today. Thanks yeah, for, well, thanks thank for the time. I appreciate it. I thought that was a really excellent interview with Rebecca, and I hope that you agree with me. It was actually part of a longer conversation that she and I had, and I didn't have the space on this podcast to get it all in there. We talked about all kinds of things from the difficulties that some groups have in getting the signatures needed to get a ballot measure onto the ballot and the importance of a new redistricting program for Oregon where there is going to be more competitive seats and less possibility for gerrymandering. Uh, We had a really wide-ranging conversation, and Rebecca is the kind of person who I feel like I could speak for hours to about politics. I do want to point out that she wrote me some emails. We emailed back and forth after the interview, and she wrote me this email, and I wanted to read it on the air. I got her permission to do so, but I thought it was a really important message. She says, For what it's worth, as I was diving into some work yesterday and found myself getting distracted by things that upset me in the news, one thing I wish I would have said during the interview is that I think it's okay for people to be angry. In fact, we should be angry because there's a lot to be angry about right now. Racial injustice, gender inequality, high taxes, high cost of living, absurd increases in homelessness, underrepresentation in elected leadership or poor leadership overall, religious freedom concerns, mental health crises on the rise, and more. Be angry. If it needs to be, let anger be what brings you to the table, but don't let it be what keeps you there. I think the real struggle we have right now isn't that we're angry, it's that we aren't channeling it in the correct places. We take it out on each other rather than at the root of the problem. We place blame instead of seeking balance. Whatever happened to fighting the good fight? Now we just fight. I want to thank Rebecca for sending me that email and for allowing me to read it into the podcast. And I think that, in fact, she gave us some tips in the interview for how we can handle this kind of anger and try to channel it in the right place. So I just wanted to finish up with that uh, and say that I hope that not only will Rebecca probably be back on the podcast, because I know we have a lot to talk about, but that people she's going to connect me with will be guests of mine in the future. I think that's a really great relationship that the two of us developed just by sitting down in the studio for about an hour. And of course, many of you know that I am a Democrat, and Rebecca has told you that she's a Republican, so we actually had no problem being a Democrat and a Republican on two microphones, being able to have a very productive conversation. And I think it's the kind of thing that both of us want people to know is not only possible, it's extremely important. Well, that's the episode for this week. And as always, I'm going to go out with a song. This is Wide Open by Cox in the Hen House, which is a local bluegrass group that I do not think is actually around anymore. I received this recording from a friend of mine, Janelle Isaacson, who is featured on vocals. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're back next week. Talk to me.
Six to three. 